reading verses 5 to 18. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. That is why the Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. I was so angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving. Turning you away from the living God, you must warn each other every day, while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived uh, by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. And who was it who rebelled against God even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it all the people who sinned, whose corpses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it those who disobeyed him? So we see that be, uh, because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. Let's pray. Lord, we again come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for your truth and your gospel, Lord, your good news. Lord, we thank you for our fathers who have come before us in faith, who have helped lay out these illustrations for us so that we may better understand who you are and we may better understand the message of your hope. Lord, we ask that you would uh, be with Pastor Doug as he comes, give him strength in his voice, Lord. Uh, give him boldness in his heart to be able to share that which you have laid on his heart with us. Lord, uh, allow us to absorb this and put it into our lives. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Immediately after this service, we'd like for all of you to join us for a time of refreshment in the fellowship hall. It's community connection. I suspect, as I was told, that there are nine dozen donuts that are there. It's all you need to know. And there's fruit also. For those of you that are concerned of your sugar content, there is a time of fellowship immediately after this service. Most ladies at some time or some point in their lives have purchased cutlery. The finest cutlery, the most expensive, are those that are taken the most time and patience to produce. The process of producing this expensive cutlery is called tempering. It's when steel is heated to red hot 
and then it is hammered into shape. Sparks fly everywhere, and when they start hammering it, the knives are put into water to cool down. This process of heating and cooling is repeated over and over again. The finest cutlery is the steel that has been tempered the most. This is what God does for us. He puts us in the furnace of a trial, hammers on us, and then he cools us off. Then just when we're getting comfortable being cooled, he lifts us out and puts us in the fire again and begins to hammer on us again, and then he cools us off again. That's why you'll always notice in the midst of a trial, God will periodically give you good days. And we get frustrated because the good days don't last long. We wonder why our trials can't be over. It's because we're not fully tempered yet. And God wants us to be fine cutlery, not cheap knives. He wants us to be finely tuned. Corey Ten Boone said it this way when she said, If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look at within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. The Christians here in the book of Hebrews. The first century Christians are being hammered. Sometimes that tempering comes from outside forces that God allows to enter our lives because his goal is to temper us, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And yet these Christians here in the book of Hebrews are beginning to think, what's the use? I'm just going to go back to the way it once was just to get cooled off. When we come to the third chapter of the book of Hebrews, we once again are contemplated by the word, therefore. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. The word therefore has a two-stage, if you will, meaning in scriptures. First, it highlights the fact of what has been previously said, therefore. And, and we know that because we've come through some of the things that the writer of Hebrews has told us concerning the superiority of Jesus Christ. It says in chapter 1, in some of the opening verses, that God speaks through him now. He, he's the one that we should be focusing in on. Prophets had their times. Angels were used by God to bring messages. But now it's Jesus. 
And the writer of Hebrews goes on the rest of the chapter 1 and highlights the fact that Jesus is superior to all of the angels. Then we get to chapter 2 in verse 1. And you may have the word wherefore or therefore there again to pause because the writer of Hebrews is warning us not to drift Seeing that Jesus is the spokesperson of God. Seeing that angels are less than Jesus. We dare not neglect our salvation and begin to drift. And then chapter 2 ends with Jesus being compared to mankind. And he's greater. He's the second Adam as recorded for us in Romans chapter 5. And what Adam could not do, Jesus Christ accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now we come to chapter 3, and there's our word again, therefore. Therefore, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the writer of Hebrews said, now it's time to consider him. And that word, you dare not go by quickly. The word consider can literally also mean behold. It can mean contemplate. It can mean stop what you're doing and think of who Jesus is. And when we begin to consider him, all of a sudden, things that we forgot about, things that we've maybe put back on a back shelf, all of a sudden come forward. I mean, to think about it, dear people, this one called Jesus has called us to be a part of his family. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews says, holy brothers, and sisters we have a confession and the confession is this that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures was buried rose again the third day according to the scriptures and was seen of many 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 5 and that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. Uh, he's the one that, even the song we sang, the lighthouse, he calms our storms. He's the one that rises and says, peace and be still. He's the one who feeds us with a few barley loaves, loaves of a slave. Loaves of people who have nothing and a few fish. And from it comes 12 baskets of leftovers. Or as we used to say at Grace Camp, must goes. Because everything must go. He's the one whereby we're asleep at night, but he never slumbers nor sleeps. He's the one who commands 
all of creation. And if it wasn't for him, none of us would be alive because he's the one that gives us breath to even live. Have we stopped considering him? Oh, I hope not. I hope not. For he's the one even in the midst of our trials and tribulations. He's the one even in the midst of the fact that we're being hammered on. He says, I'm here. I'll never leave you. i never forsake you. But it doesn't go beyond that. Because now he's introduced as an apostle. What? An apostle. Now we've got to discuss what is an apostle. The simplest, if you will, definition of an apostle is this. Someone who has been sent by God. That's the simplest. But it has nothing, but it falls far short of the full meaning. Not only is it an individual sent by God, but he has the authority of God. When you go to the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul defends his apostleship. Whenever it came into question, the Apostle Paul made sure that those who were attacking him realized that not only was he sent from God, but he was given authority by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He was told by the Lord Jesus Christ that you are going to speak to kings, princes, and people. It's your authority. When Jesus Christ was sent, and, and we know we just came through that season, he was sent by God the Father. But he was given authority. Let me prove that to you. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, please. And verse 18 starts with a declaration when Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, you might have a different word there in your translation. You might have, all power has been given to me. It's the same word. Jesus Christ was not only sent as a babe, if you will, in human form, described for us in chapter 2, but he came with authority that nobody else had because his authority was in heaven and on earth. He's our apostle. But it doesn't stop there because he's also referred to as a high priest. A high priest is an individual that brings man to God. He is the mediator 
between God and man. Now you're going to need a verse for that. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man who? Christ Jesus. He is our prophet. Now in that, we got to consider some things. Because him being our high priest prays for us. Aren't you glad the Savior prays for you? He intercedes for us. And as we're going through the book of the Revelation in, in Wednesday evenings, we're going to get to the place of when it describes that our arch enemy accuses the brethren day and night. But I'm glad I have, a, I have an intercessor who's there saying, Father, but he's mine. He's mine. What a great consideration. Not only that, as a high priest, but he has opened the way in which previous to this, no one could enter into the presence of God. Through his death, when he hung on the cross, when he said it is finished, the curtain that separated the holy from holies was torn from top to bottom. He gave us access to the very throne room of God. He's our high priest. And the writer of Hebrews says, stop and behold him. He's our apostle and our high priest. But as we continue on, he was also faithful to the one who, as it says, appointed him. He was faithful. My, 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 my. When Jesus took three of his disciples to the top of a mountain, and we call that the Mount of Transfiguration, which is for us in Matthew chapter 17, as Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah, Jesus and the three disciples, John, Peter, and James, all of a sudden there's a voice that says, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. That's the second time that they, that that, passage or at least that message came from the father for it was at his baptism as he comes up out of the water and as the dove comes and lights on him again the voice says this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased he was faithful oh but you need a verse even greater than that revelation 19 and verse 11 when the picture that John sees of Jesus coming back to this earth to establish his millennium kingdom, it says he is clothed in royal robes. And this is what he, and its writer is called faithful 
and true. Jesus Christ. He's faithful. To me, that, that means something that I hope you have come to understand. He's that faithful that he'll never rescind that which he has offered to us freely. Salvation by grace through faith. He'll never remove it from you if you trust in him by grace through faith. He'll never throw you underneath the bus. I guess that figure means get rid of you. Almost like a stale piece of gum when you're chewing it down the road and you open the window and you throw it out. Hopingly it doesn't choke some kind of animal on the side of the road. He doesn't do that. He's faithful. Now, as these first century Hebrew Christians are considering to leave that, the writer of Hebrews says, don't. He's faithful. And then he begins to point to the superiority of, that Jesus has over Moses. First, the, the writer of Hebrews shows some similarities between Moses and, and Jesus. For it, it reminds us this, that both Jesus and Moses are said to be faithful. Did you see that in, in verse 2? He, he was faithful to the one who appoints him just as Moses was in all God's household. Now, the reason the writer of Hebrews brings in Moses is because he is revered in the Jewish faith. Moses gave the law. He was the vehicle through which God spoke and he gave the law. And so the writer of Hebrews is beginning to dissect, if you will, the truth that Jesus is superior. They're both faithful, yes. The second thing is that one theologian put it this way when he said, fidelity to duty is the crown and flower of character. In Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7, God said this about Moses. My servant Moses is faithful in all my house. And then as we've already seen, both in Matthew 17, 5 and Revelation 19, 11, this is my beloved faithful son. The second similarity is this is that each one introduced a new dispensation. Whoa, where did that word come from? I don't see that in the text at all. But when you come to Moses, all of a sudden, the time of law came into being. So what's a dispensation? A dispensation is divisions of time that can be defined as progressive stages 
in God's revelation, each consisting of a distinct stewardship or rule to live. Before the law, it was a dispensation of innocence. Genesis, all the way up to the book of Exodus. We now live in the dispensation of grace. It's all by grace. And there's going to be a dispensation known as kingdom. Revelation 19 and 20. When Jesus Christ comes and establishes his kingdom on this earth. Moses introduced law. Jesus Christ came not only fulfilling the law, but introduced grace. We live now in the dispensation of grace. The Hebrew people were baptized into Moses, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. Believer people, Christians, are baptized into Christ, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. The writings of Moses are to the Old Testament what a granite formation is to the layers of the earth's crust. That's not mine, that's someone else's. So is so the writing, the written life of Christ is the foundation of the New Testament scripture. There's a third similarity that we need to spend just a few moments on. It is this. Each was divinely commissioned and supported in his work. Moses' call came in the book of Exodus. And it was there that God sent him with a commission. I've heard my people's cries. I'm sending you to them to take them out of Egypt. Moses says, who am I supposed to say is sending me? Tell them I am that I am. We looked at that last week. Yahweh is his name. And Jesus Christ was also commissioned. This is my beloved son. Moses, with his marvelous gifts, was raised up and trained and called to his life task. So was Jesus. Moses enjoyed closeness with God as described in Scripture as the Lord knew him face to face. So did Jesus. Moses had his own dwelling, if you will. It was called the house of meeting. It was a place where Moses went outside of the children of Israel encampment to a place where he met God face to face. The Shekinah glory shone on that every time Moses went in. And the people of Israel were aghast. And Jesus, in the Gospels, how many times can we read where Jesus left and went alone 
to pray and meet with his father. So dynamic was that, that the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And the Greek would inform us like that. Teach us to pray like that. That's what we want. The similarities, though, go no further than that. Now, the writer of Hebrews in verses 3 through 6 points to the superiority of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, it says, is the builder of the house. Moses was only one of the stones in it. To realize that our faith was built upon the chief corner stone, Jesus Christ. And that which we have now, the written word of God, came from apostles, prophets, all to build our faith up. But Jesus Christ is the builder. We're only stones. The Son of God is appointed heir of all things and is the creator of the universe. Chapter 1 and verse 2. Moses didn't create anything. Jesus Christ is a redeemer of both Old Testament and New Testament saints through his blood and caused to grow by Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a loaded question. How did the Old Testament people get saved? I don't think I got any on my shirt, honey. <laughs> How did they get saved? Same way we do, by faith. Faith, for them, was to look forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. As the one-time president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Lewis Perry Chafer mentioned it like this. He said, all of the credit of the Old Testament came due and was paid in full at the cross of Christ. were saved. Moses didn't do it. Law couldn't do it. It was by faith in Christ. Moses was a ransom sinner saved by grace like other men, a living stone built into the spiritual house by Christ, the master builder, just like you. Christ is the son set over God's house. Moses was only a servant 
within it. Verse 5 and 6. Moses ministered as a confident house steward, an honored servant. Christ entered it as its master to preside over it by virtue of his divine sonship. As described by the author earlier in chapter 1, Jesus Christ is the very image of God, the Lord of all the angels, and is now described as being more renowned, even more than Moses. Christ is the incarnate word of God. Moses was only his forerunner. When you go to the book of Deuteronomy, and in chapter 14, and in verse 15, Moses says to the people, there's another one that's coming after me. And he's coming from among you, nation of Israel. Jesus came from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah. David, in the line of David, in order to be king of all that there is. Moses bore testimony to those things which were afterward to be spoken, to the new and final revelation to be made at last when God should speak in his Son. The revelations of Moses were the faint twilight of the morning, those of Christ, the full splendor of new day. The institutions of Moses were the scaffolding, those of Christ, the finished fabric of, of religious truth. As we have previously noted these Hebrew Christians were considering the idea of forsaking the relationship with Jesus Christ to return to the religion they once knew. The writer of Hebrews, in demonstrating the superiority of Jesus Christ over all angelic beings, human mankind, now Moses is encouraging them not to forsake what they can have in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 6. The message is clear. Keep going with Christ until you reach the finish line. We must hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast not to obtain salvation, but to obtain the blessings of salvation. In the Olympics, one of the games involves a bunch of guys in a rowboat. They row their boats with their backs to the finish line. They can't see the finish line, but in the boat is a guy with a megahorn known as the coxswain. He sits in such a position that he can see the finish line and, and all the while he is shouting instructions to the rowers, pull! Paul, row, row. 
The rowers in the boat keep their eyes fixed on the coxswain while they row. And while they can't see where they're going, he can. So they fix their eyes on him. The coxswain gives them a cadence and keeps them on track. If you don't know where you're headed, if following Jesus Christ seems to be old hat, and you're thinking of giving up as those in the book of Hebrews were considering, let me encourage you to refocus on Jesus Christ. Readjust your focus from what is causing you to doubt. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who later on in the text is described as the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross suffered the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He knows where your finish line is. He knows how to get you in the start of the race and he knows how to take you to the finish line. Is Jesus Christ worth following? You bet he is. Greater than angels. Greater than mankind. Greater than Moses. Now I must tell you, chapter 3 and chapter 4 should have all been preached this morning. But if I would have done that, I would have got the stare of death from nursery and children's church people. Next week, Lord willing, I'm calling, I'm asking Jesus to call us home. But if he says not yet, next week, we're now going to look at even Jesus' ministry is greater than Moses' ministry. Be encouraged, dear people. Days may be cloudy like this, but I want to tell you something. The sun still shines. He still shines. Let's close in prayer, shall we? God, beyond all of our imagination, beyond all of our understanding of your scriptures, we are faced with the truth that even in the midst of being fine hammered to come to be the best cutlery. Jesus is still worth following. I know we all struggle with life and what seems to be unfair. Life that events that seem to crowd us in and we wonder if we're ever going to be able to breathe again. But Jesus, you're still there. You're the one who will take us to the promised land. Lord, I pray for this, these people, this congregation. Throughout this coming week, oh Lord, I ask that both your grace and your mercy 
would be poured out upon them. And when it seems they can't go any further, let them hear from our Savior, Paul. Paul. Row. Row. The finish line is just ahead. So unto you, our God, we ask these things. Amen. May we stand for the benediction.